Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Axness, because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, Clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Airwave, the Airwave Performance Mouthpiece, helping you to use breathing to your advantage. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S dot com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With a certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment, all you got to do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com. Mention this podcast and they'll take care of the rest. And Airwave. What if I told you that you could train harder for longer 
and recover faster just by wearing a mouthpiece. I know, I questioned it too. Then I gave it a try. The Airwave Performance Mouthpiece is a breakthrough in performance technology that is scientifically proven with over 15 years of peer-reviewed published research at the Citadel to open your airway by 25% for improved breathing, resulting in a 20% decrease in respiratory rate, an increase in muscular endurance, and 50% reduction in cortisol levels post-workout. Now, what does this mean to me? Well, now I'm able to train harder, recover faster, and be even more prepared for when that SAR alarm goes off. You don't need to take my word for it. Try it yourself and see how you can use your breathing to your advantage. Go to airwave.com or visit them on Instagram at airwave to learn more about it. Then, when you're ready to give it a try, because you heard about it here at The Real Rescue, you get 10% off with the promotion code Real Rescue, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Coming up next in this episode of The Real Rescue, we are joined by another pilot who comes on with some amazing stories. He flew with the United States Army as well as the United States Coast Guard. Now, retired, he's enjoying his life as an author. Please welcome our next guest, Mr. Darcy Guyant. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. I've got another pilot with us today. I'm so excited because uh, this guy not only flew in the Army, but he also flew in the United States Coast Guard. As a matter of fact, he spent the majority of his time in the United States Coast Guard. So please welcome Mr. Darcy Guyant. What's up, Darcy? How are you, buddy? Hey. Hey, Jason. Uh, so happy to be on your uh, your podcast here with you. I've been listening to you for a long, long time and staying in touch man. with my roots in Coast Guard uh, aviation by listening yes. to you and, and also learning about search and rescue around the rest of the world. Uh, a lot of interesting stories of uh, what happens everywhere else. Uh, uh, so right. it's, it's been a great experience. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here with you. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for listening too. And I, yeah, yeah. like I feel the same way. There's so much great stuff that people are doing out there and stuff that still just blows my mind. I get on somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Exactly, I love yeah. it. So, all right. So you were army flew in there for a little while. Coast guard came in from there for a little while, but you know, I'm going to ask for a little background, but let's start with the army thing. Like what were you flying in the army? What aircraft? Okay. Well, to to tell you about how he got in the army, I got to tell you how he got interested in uh, aviation. Uh, I, I never thought about being a pilot until the beginning of my senior year of high school, September of 1979. I've been around a while. And um, hot I, I was, I I still, I was yeah. one. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> sorry, um, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> lo- love you, Darcy. Love. <laughs> All right. But uh, I, I was watching a football game. Uh, it was a, a weekend, September, and a commercial came on in the middle of the football game and it started out with this beautiful uh wilderness lake glassy water forest surrounded mountains in the 
in the background and and in comes a beaver float plane it swoops in over uh, the top of the trees and it glides in and it lands on this beautiful wilderness lake and they taxi up to the beach and guys jump out and they're fishing they're setting up their camp they're fishing uh from the shore and uh and i'm like watching this carefully because i love camping and fishing when i was a, a teenager and um, the last scene of the of the video is the camera pulls back and it shows these guys sitting on the beach around this fire and the float plane in the back and the beautiful lake behind it and they're all drinking beer. And the, the tagline comes on, it's Miller time, it's time to relax. So it was, it was a beer commercial. And I saw that That's and I awesome. went, I wanna do that. I want to be an Alaska bush pilot and fly that kind of plane and take people in and go fishing and camping. And uh, so I asked my dad, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, I think you got to go learn how to fly first. And I said, so I went down to the airport the next weekend and started taking flying lessons. So a senior in high school, by the time I finished my senior year, I got my private pilot fixed wing license and knew I wanted to do that. So it's expensive to learn how to fly on your own. So I looked into the military and the Army at the time, I think they still do, had a high school to flight school program where I went, I graduated high school, went right into the Army, went through basic training, and then they sent me to Fort Rucker, Alabama to go through flight training um, and flying Hueys. So I learned to fly Hueys, UH-1s. Yes. I graduated from uh, flight training in 1981 at the age of 19, 19-year-old pilot, and they sent me to Korea for a couple of years and then back to Fort Rucker to be an instructor pilot. While I was at Fort Rucker, I got my bachelor's degree from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and then heard about the Coast Guard and their direct mission aviator program. I said, hmm, that sounds interesting and using my skills as a pilot to save people. It sounded like something I'd like to do. So I looked into it, applied, got picked up. And so I got a direct mission into the Coast Guard. Uh, uh, after seven years in the army and uh and it all started from there so mm. so out of curiosity because i just i gotta hear it from the pilot going from the huey the h1 to the dolphin the h865 alpha how did that go okay well i actually flew the h52 first i came into the Ooh. coast guard Nice. I was assigned to Air Station uh, Port Angeles, which was still flying the H-52. So they sent me to the transition and my first star case was actually in an H-52 and I'll share that with you in a minute. But uh, so I flew the H-52 for about six, seven months. And uh, for me to go from a Huey, which I love that thing, to me an too. H-52, the H-52 had a unique capability, which I'll talk about. All right. That was awesome. But uh, it, it, to me, it was slower. It didn't have as much power. It was big. It, it, to me, it sometimes felt like I was flying a barn door. It, it just, uh, <laughs> it was not the same. I, I just love the Huey. Uh, but the 52 was, I, I'm glad I had a chance to uh, fly it for a little while. Just because it, it, it was a, it's a legacy aircraft where the, uh, so many famous things happened with the, uh, with the 52 and the people that knew how to fly it really well. And, and use it as a great rescue platform but yes it was kind of for me it was a little bit of a step down but gotcha. but then they but then the 65 like whoa uh going from a, a truck like you talked about with the huey uh, <laughs> totally. that, 
I mean, it would go through trees. I mean, you could chop down trees and keep on going. It, it takes a beating and keeps on going. But the 65 was sleek and fast and had modern avionics and navigation equipment. Uh, but it seemed to break a lot, especially in the beginning. H65 Alpha, you know, it had yeah. issues. And, That's but all right. still, it was they're like night and day, the, the aircraft. But yeah, I, totally I still are. That's why I'm asking, because you literally went from a truck to a sports car. <laughs> exactly. And the 52, yeah, especially. Oh, my gosh. I love that. <laughs> oh, Darcy, that's fantastic. Well, uh, thanks for that. Um, you mentioned it. You you get to Port Angeles, your very first search and rescue case. You know, like, I love these stories because everybody's got their first. Yeah. So actually, I was still at ATC Mobile going through an H-52 transition. I hadn't even gone to Port Angeles yet. I went, got got into the Coast Guard, went to Yorktown, Virginia for two weeks for our, you know, here's your uniforms, this is how you wear them, and, and uh, this is the terminology that you need to get used to. You're not in the Army anymore. Um, and then I went straight to Mobile. And my family came out here to Washington to live with my parents. So I went to Mobile and I'm going through the age 52 transition. I think I, I may have been in the last or maybe the second to last uh, transition course for the age 52 is myself and uh, Steve Huey, um, who, who came from the Army also at the same time. And uh, so we went through the 52 transition and we were out over Mobile Bay one day in the middle of my uh, transition training, and uh, we had just been doing some uh, some practice approaches to the water and some water landings. Very unique capability of the H-52. You can land and take yeah. off from the water. And <laughs> it took a little bit of change in my mindset to get used to being over the water, because in the Army, they trained us and taught us to not fly over the water. You don't have survival equipment. Your aircraft's not equipped for being over the water. And it was beat into our heads. Water is bad. You will die if you fly over water. So then here we go in the Coast Guard where we stay over the water. You want to be over the water. That's the safest place to be. So I had to go through a change of mindset. But after a while, I went, you know what? This does make sense. There's a lot less things to run into over the water than over land. But anyway, so we were making landings to the water, practicing. And then we got a call from Group Mobile. And uh, there was a, an overturned vessel. So they somehow got a report of an overturned vessel. It wasn't too far from where we were. So we diverted from training to go find it. We got there and we located them pretty quickly. It was a very windy day. It was probably 25, 30 knots of wind. And we found an overturned skiff. It was a very big boat. And there was a guy clinging to the bottom of the hull. And he didn't have a life jacket on. He was just holding on for dear life. And uh, it wasn't very responsive as we orbited around. So we saw that, okay, it looks like uh, hoist isn't going to be a good choice here. We didn't have rescue swimmers at that time. So we did a, an approach right. to the water, landed on the water. I'm in the right seat. And uh, the, uh, the IP in the left seat said, okay, you're going to get your first live platform pickup. And in H-52, you can land and you can water taxi up to... <laughs> your survivor, they threw out a platform and the, so the flight mech could step outside the, the door onto the platform and grab the survivor and pull them in. So that's what we did essentially. And the IP, of course, that was with me, his name is uh, Gabe Lissy. Um, he coached me through every every bit of it and I taxied up and uh, the flight mech stepped out on the 
platform, grabbed him off the boat, pulled him in, and, uh, and then Gabe, you know, we buttoned up, uh, pulled the platform up, closed the door, got ready to take off, and Gabe took the controls back, and he flew us over to the airport, which wasn't too far away, and they had already made arrangements for an ambulance, because the guy was very hypothermic. Okay. And, uh, and this was in November of 1987, so that was pretty cold. Um, but as we're flying back to the airport, I turned around, I looked back in the cabin, and the guy is sitting there. The flight mech had put his jacket around him. He's shivering. He's soaking wet. He's hunched over. And uh, I'm looking at him, and he looks up at me, and he gives me a little thumbs up. Nice. Uh, I mean, I was that's why I went into the Coast Guard so I could do this. So here I hadn't even gotten out of training yet. And I had my first rescue. And on top of that, it was a live platform pickup, which I come to find out later is pretty rare in an H-52. They did a lot of hoisting, but I mean, platform pickups were an option, but the conditions had to be just right. So yeah, um, checked a lot of blocks with that one. And and I was so stoked and so hooked after that. And I got back to the base and I'm calling my wife and saying, you're not going to believe what just happened. And she was so... Oh my God, cool. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, well done, sir. In training yeah. and everything. That's great. Gosh. So uh, for those that don't know, the whole water taxi up is is like, it's almost like taxiing on the ramp. It's just, it is. you're just yeah. moving forward and step right out of the water. It's great. You're on the water. And what was really weird, I, I noticed uh, doing the training, especially because it was windy out in Mobile Bay, it was generating a little bit of waves. It wasn't swells, but it was, you know, a little wave slapping against the side. And you'd have waves kind of slapping up against the chin bubble down by my feet. And I'm going, this is not natural. You know, <laughs> we should not be here. But it was very stable because the H-52 had sponsons out on the side to help you so you didn't flip over. And and uh, it didn't take long to kind of get comfortable and go, oh, this is this is so awesome. Yeah. Oh, I used to tell great. people, well, yeah, a Huey and an H-65 can land on the water once. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't take back off. <laughs> that's right. You're stuck. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, so I... Port Angeles, where, just out of curiosity, where else were you stationed while you were in? Because you were in for, you retired out, yeah? I, I retired after 25 years total, Army and Coast Guard, uh, 18 of that in the Coast Guard, seven in Army. Um, so I went to Port Angeles first, um, and then we transitioned to the 65 there. And um, and then after that, I went back to ATC Mobile, be an, an instructor in the 65 nice. branch. And then from there, I went to Kodiak, uh, to Allpath to uh, do deployments to the Bering Sea. Uh, not a lot of fun, but a great experience. Uh, as you know, you've been in Alaska. You know what it's like. I've heard your Love stories. Alaska. So, Love Alaska. Um, but then from there, I went back to uh, Port Angeles again for a second tour. And, um, and then after a second tour in Port Angeles, I went to a training center in Yorktown, Virginia. It was my only non-flying uh, position so 25 years in i flew uh ever since i was in flight school 19 years old all the way up until my last four years uh, at, at yorktown at the national SAR. i was the chief of the national SAR school so i was still involved in search and rescue but i didn't fly i was the subject matter expert in in our school and so i got to keep my hands in in search and rescue and in aviation but i didn't fly at all anymore and then i retired in 2005 wow. Yeah, you you did uh you did a good career. That sounds like a blast. Are you kidding? That's it awesome. Was. 
Yeah, I couldn't ask, couldn't have asked, I would have done nothing different. Some people ask, well, if you could have gone somewhere else or done something different, would you have made the same choices? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I was so blessed to be able to go to all those places. Uh, uh, yeah, just great experiences. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So one of your cases that we're going to, we're going to talk about right now, just so happens is a, like one of your most memorable one where you guys got launched out for out of the Coast Guard to a wildfire to go rescue some people that were what? They were trapped. Yeah. Oh, so man. This was my second tour in Port Angeles. It was uh, the summer of 1999. And um, in up in Port Angeles, uh, well, there's, there's a, a couple of spits, sand spits that stick out into the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And one of them is called Dungeness Spit. And there's a lighthouse out at the end of the uh, out at the end of the spit. It's automated now. The the lighthouse uh, it's out at the end of the seven mile narrow sand spit that sticks out into Puget Sound, straight on to Fuca. But uh, people can rent that uh, lighthouse and take their families out there and stay out there for a week in this this lighthouse. Um, and they do some caretaker type stuff out there just for fun. That's but, actually uh, really cool. It is. Uh, a lot of people go out there and spend a week out there, and uh, but you're kind of isolated because it's seven miles out in yeah. this sand spit, and the only way you can drive out there is at low tide. You can drive in a four wheel vehicle along the beach, um, or you could you can go via boat, but there's no real good access via a boat to get out there either. Um, so you either gotta fly in like we did, or uh, drive out. So, so one night. Um, I'm on duty at the base and Port Angeles is, you know, just about 10 miles away, 15 miles away from the lighthouse there. And the command center, the OOD gets a call and said, there's some people staying at the lighthouse. Um, they said, there's a fire burning on the end of the spit. It's to their West and uh, the fire is burning toward them. And they're afraid that the, the fire's gonna reach the lighthouse and uh, the lighthouse is gonna catch on fire and they need help getting off the spit. And they can't drive, nobody, they've already, they had already called the sheriff's department and the sheriff said, we can't get out there, it's high tide. Um, we can't get out there right now. And um, it was really windy. I, I walked out and uh, from my office over to the operations center and there was a good 30 knot wind blowing. And so it was very, a lot of waves crashing. So there's no way to drive out there. They couldn't launch a boat to get out there because of the high winds and the waves to get a small boat out there. And a 40, a Coast Guard boat can't get close enough to get people off. So we uh, said, yeah, we'll come get you. So we took off and they had, there was eight people. We found out, you know, getting the information. There was four adults and four kids. Kids were like eight to 12 years old. And uh, we took off. And as soon as we got airborne, we had our night vision goggles. We got it. It was dark by this time. We got out there. And uh, as soon as we got airborne, we could see the fire on the spit, you know, with our night vision goggles. So we we flipped our goggles up because we knew we were, they weren't going to need them with the fire. We couldn't use them. And uh, it was plenty bright. And we flew over there. And in the meantime, they had evacuated the building, the lighthouse building, the, the house because the flames that were burning down the spit, and the, the spit, uh, Dungeness Spit doesn't have any trees, but it has a lot of really, really tall uh, grass. Okay. Uh, grass probably stands about three or four feet tall, and it's oh, wow. filled with driftwood. 
driftwood that oh, washes yeah. up on the shore. So it was all driftwood and grass. And somehow uh, it had started on fire and the wind, 30 knot wind, it was uh, just like a bellows, just blowing this fire, getting it hot, starting everything on fire. And it was moving it, pushing these flames toward the lighthouse. So they left the lighthouse knowing that we were coming and they didn't want to get trapped or surrounded. And so they're moving to the east on the on the tip of the spit and they're surrounded by water. So there's no place else they can go, but toward the tip. So we want, we landed out there. We went out, we found a spot to land in the, in the sand and the grass and, and flight. We sent the, uh, the rescue swimmer out to go talk to them. And we knew we couldn't take all people, all eight people at once. So they talked about it and figured out, okay, who's going. We picked up uh, the two moms and two of her kids, put them on board and we left the swimmer behind, of course. And yeah. uh, he's got Standard his radio. Arms. We're talking to him. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we took off, uh, knowing we'd have to make at least two trips to, to get everybody. And uh, as we were heading back to Fort Angeles with the first group, uh, they had recalled the second helo. The ops officer and Ketzel came in, and uh, and um, uh, Mark Heigel was the other pilot. He came in on the weekend, and uh, they took off to go get the rest of them. Uh, and so they flew out there and they picked up, uh, so as we dropped off our first load of passengers, we turned around and went back and, uh, the second aircraft picked up the, the two dads and the other two kids and they, the second aircraft left their rescue swimmer behind also. So there's two swimmers still on deck, um, uh, with a fire approaching. So we talked to the other aircraft said, yeah, we'll go, we'll go pick up both swimmers. So we go back out there and in the meantime, the fire had continued to burn toward the end. And it was almost to the end of this peninsula. And the swimmers kept moving, moving, moving to stay ahead of the flames. And we were running out of room to be able to make our landing and still stay far enough away from the flames that, you know, we felt comfortable. And uh, we're on the radio, we're talking to the swimmers and and they say, jokingly, I said, um, hey, do you guys want to just swim to get off the <laughs> swim? And they're like, oh, yeah, we can do that. We got, yeah, we can even swim back to Port Angeles. I'm like, that's 15 miles in a, in a windstorm. I don't think so. Uh, and they probably would have. I know how you guys are. Uh, no, um, totally would have. We said, no, nah, we'll, we'll come and get you. You don't have to swim. Just stay there. But but they had that as a, they were actually thinking about that already. It's like, yeah, we can't get burned up. But hey, we can swim. Let's get out of here. So we made an approach. The flames are still getting closer and closer. We just had just enough room to land. They jumped on real quick. And uh, there's there's 30 knots of wind blowing. So we had to take off into the wind, kind of. And the smoke and ambers are just blowing as blowing toward us. And I pulled power and I tried to go, you know, up over the smoke as best I could. But as I'm passing through the smoke, there's like burning ambers surrounding the aircraft. We still have the door open. And every once in a while, a, an amber, a, a burning amber would blow in the door and the flight mech and swimmers would, you know, put it out. And the thought that went through my head as I'm taking off, I didn't say it out loud, but I was thinking it, I hope we don't explode. Why, why I thought that, I don't know, because you don't just spontaneously combust. I mean, there's nothing, but, but I'd never thrown, flown through fire before. And, uh, it was hot. You could still feel the heat and the flames coming from this, uh, this blowtorch blow us. And, uh, so we got through it and we didn't blow up. We didn't catch on fire and everybody was fine. So that was 
the most dramatic uh, rescue I I did because it involved fire, you know, and flying through fires. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. Eight people saved. Well done, sir. Well done to you. Yeah, and the yeah, eight people saved and. Okay. Yeah, right, and so, the, then we went back to do a. We went back out the next morning in the daylight, thinking we were going to see a burned down lighthouse. The flames had gone completely around the lighthouse and lighthouse property, so they'd have been fine if they'd have stayed in the lighthouse. But they didn't know that at the time, you know. Yeah, they could have yeah. caught on fire, but so everything else on on Dungeness Pit burned up except the lighthouse. <laughs> what a trip! Man, what a cool story. What a great case. I like that. I like yeah, that. Thank you. Great. Great. Thank you. Um, so while you were, I think it was in part, Angels, you had a uh, a hoax call, which we get a lot of in the Coast Guard. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember getting one specifically, and it was some guy trying to do an insurance fraud thing. Uh, he said he jumped off the jetty and the son saw him go in, blah, blah, blah. We searched for like three days, and then on day five, they find him up in Idaho somewhere, and right. it, it happens. So what was yours? So it was, again, it was in the summer. Uh, it was like July, and this was like a year after the fire, so it was 2000. And um, nice summer day, clear blue skies, uh, lots of boaters out everywhere, especially up in the San Juan Islands, the Puget Sound very, very popular place for boating. And uh, Group Seattle heard a single Mayday call on one of their, their high sites or radio sites up in the San Juans. And it was just a one call, Mayday, Mayday. No sense of urgency, um, nothing, no other information. We didn't have any way of knowing where it came from. Um, but Group said, you know, and I, there's low risk. Go take a look, guys. So we said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll go up there and maybe we'll draw a flare. Maybe we'll, uh, you know, whoever said it will say it again and maybe we can try it, triangulate or do something. Um, so we went up to just to go uh, make an appearance, take a look as best we could, just in case, because it's a huge area. So it's not like we can really do a, a search pattern. We just got to go up there and hope to draw some additional information. But before I took off, before we took off, you know, I'm on duty. I'm part of the duty crew. It's a Sunday. And uh, my stomach was feeling a little unsettled uh, even before we, we took off. So I, I had a bite to eat thinking, okay, uh, maybe I'm just hungry. So I, I had uh, had a quick bite before, before we head out to the aircraft. And, uh, and uh, we took off, went, did our thing, flying around, didn't spot anything and um finally at, at the end of a bag of gas uh, you know we're getting down to bingo it's time to go someplace and get fuel and group seattle says yeah we're just gonna uh, call it a, a hoax and go ahead and stand down return to base so we turned around we, we started heading back to port angeles and this whole flight my stomach was getting i was getting i was just getting more and more upset. I was having pains in my stomach. I didn't say anything to the crew because we got around a sour case. What am I going to do? And and uh, so we kept going. And as we were heading back <clears throat> toward uh, Port Angeles, we we're probably about 15 minutes out from landing. And uh, I started sweating and my heart rate started going up and I knew something bad was about to happen like I, I i knew i was gonna throw up i knew i was gonna puke i've oh, never wow. been air sick in my entire life you know i've been 
flying for 20 years and never got airsick. Seasick, yeah, but airsick, no. Um, and you know um, what? That's me too. Just so you know, yeah. like I've been seasick as well. Airsick, not so much. Seasick, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's different. It's a different kind of motion that makes you totally seasick. Is. But so I, uh, I was flying. You know, I, I think you know, I'm flying, thinking, okay, I'll just fly us back manually and uh, and maybe just take my mind off of my stomach and how I'm feeling. But then I, I, I got to the point where, okay, I know I'm going to puke. So I told the co-pilot, his name was Tayboy, uh, pretty new, uh, first year or first air station out of flight school, uh, still co-pilot, but good guy, good stick. So I gave him the controls and of course, and I told him, yeah, I'm not feeling too good. And of course he's like, yeah, right. This is some kind of drill, right? You know, I'm, I'm trying to test him on something. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm really not feeling well. Uh, and I asked the flight mech in the back in the, in the swimmer, I said, you guys got a, like a bag, anything I can throw up in because I, I, I really think I'm gonna I'm gonna be sick. And they grabbed a, a plastic bag and yeah, where it came from I don't know, but they handed it to me, and I'm sitting in the in the left seat, co-pilot seat, and Tase flying us back. And uh, I put my microphone up out of the way because I knew I, was, I felt like I was about to puke. And um, all of a sudden, my vision I just started getting tunnel vision. I just remember looking at the lights off oh in the distance God. of the airport of where I was heading, and my my vision just started getting narrower and narrower. And I've never passed out before in my entire life. But I said, this must be what it's like to pass out. So I, I thought I was going to pass out. So before I passed out, I did something. I, 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 don't, I did something. I reached down and locked my shoulder harness. So I'm sitting up straight and I lock my shoulder harness, thinking that if I pass out, I don't want to slump forward and fall on the flight controls. And now I got the co-pilot trying to you know, get me off the, the controls and fly. And I think the idea for doing that came from when I was in the army. I had a, an old army a Vietnam veteran tell me that if you're ever flying in, in training or sometime in my flying career in the army, he said, if you're ever flying into combat or where people are shooting at you and you think you're going to get uh, killed or, you know, wounded and pass out, lock your shoulder harness so you don't fall on the controls and, and kill everybody. Uh, wow. So that what was a good idea. Head. Like, yeah, it's uh, yeah, not something so, I even, ever even thought about. That's brilliant. And it was only because he planted that seed so many years ago, and I knew wow. I was going to become, I felt like I was going to become incapacitated. So I, I locked my shoulder harness so I wouldn't do that. And then the vision blacked out. I just went black. And um, next thing I knew, I, I, I had my head back and I'm looking up at the overhead panel and... Uh, the rescue swimmer is right there. He's got his hand on my shoulder and he's shaking me and he's he's saying, Commander, Commander, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's trying to wake me up. I think those guys probably thought I had just died or something. I don't know. I had a, an oh aneurysm my or God. something. They didn't know what was going on because I just passed out all of a sudden at the controls. And um, so he's shaking me and I open up my eyes and he's right there and uh, I, I look forward and I knew that I'm glad I had that bag like ready to go because I just blah, I, I started vomiting right then and there. It was the next thing. And um, I, I puked. <laughs> uh, it was they were not impressed, uh, but I, you know, I got most of it in the bag. Um, <laughs> but after maintenance was not happy. No, there was a little little bit of cleanup afterwards, but uh, minor detail. Anyway, um, 
So I, after, you know, I upchucked my lunch that I had eaten before the flight, uh, I felt better and I was able to bring my microphone back down and, and talk. And in this time, during the interval, interval um, the co-pilot had radioed the air station, declared an emergency, explained what was going on. Uh, the uh, uh, air station called an ambulance. Ambulance was on the way to meet us when we landed so I could, could go to the hospital. And um, of course, the flight mech uh, or the uh, rescue swimmer being an EMT, he's asking me questions and and uh, trying to evaluate me. And and I was by this time I was I felt fine. I had you know I had all my wits about me again. And and but I knew that was not natural. <laughs> that was not yeah. supposed to happen. So we landed without incident. Tay did great. He didn't. He stayed calm. The co-pilot he stayed calm, and we landed. And I got my first first ever ambulance ride to the hospital. Well, it was a flight of first for me. They kept me in the hospital. I, I was continued to be sick uh, on and off at the hospital. They finally sent me home. My wife came, picked me up, took me home, and I was I was sick for like twenty four hours. Uh, finally, went after recovering from that, I went back to see the flight surgeon. And the whole time I'm like, okay, I'm done flying. I, I had never heard of anybody passing out in flight and not being grounded permanently. I mean, it, yeah. it's just a thing that if you're a pilot and you pass out, especially in flight, uh, you're done. Your flying career is done. So I had already resigned myself to, okay, that was my last flight. And I saw the flight surgeon and he did, you know, I was dehydrated. So they hooked me up to some IVs and he evaluated me and, and he said, you know what, I, th I think it was probably food poisoning, just based on the description of what you're talking about and your stomach pains. And, and the reason I, I passed out was because I locked my shoulder harness. I couldn't put my head down like you normally do if you feel like you're going to pass out. And it's the vasovagal, I think they Vaso call it, reaction. Vasoconstriction, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the blood just drained out of my head. And, uh, and he, he said, if I hadn't locked my shoulder harness, I probably would have just bent over to puke. And I wouldn't have passed out, but that uh, he said, in one respect, okay, thanks for not, you know, passing out and falling on the flight controls, but that probably is what led to you passing out. So he had all this uh, reasonings for behind what happened. And he said, yeah, I'll submit a waiver, ask for a waiver uh, to Coast Guard headquarters. Uh, but I, I think we can get you back in flight status. I'm like, what? Really? Wow. I'd never heard of that before. And um, I, as I'm talking to the flight surgeon, you know, I, I had already resigned myself and accepted the fact that I was done flying. And then he told me, well, no, not necessarily. Yeah, we, uh, we can get you back on with my recommendation, get you back in flight system. Well, I got a little emotional at that point because I thought I was done and I didn't want to be done. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I should start shedding a few tears and it's, it's like, yeah, this, this is great doc. And, and of course they did that. They got my uh, got my waiver, and I had to, of course, you have to do an annual flight physical, and I had to submit for a waiver continually. But I think part of the reason they gave me a waiver is the Coast Guard was really short of pilots during this time, and uh, they, okay. they were more willing to give me a waiver, especially somebody like myself with experience and uh, never happened before uh, history of this never happening before, and so they let me keep flying. But um, that incident affected me mentally. Um, I now knew that this was a possibility. And, and then I started wondering, well, what if 
I didn't have a capable co-pilot. What if we were someplace where we couldn't land within 15 minutes like we did? What if? So all these what ifs start going through. What if I was single yeah. pilot, which we did occasionally, some single pilot flying. Um, and, and then after that, you know, every time I had a little tummy ache, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, that's it. Here, here, here it comes again. You know, I, I need to, I need to yeah. cancel my flight. I need to get off the, get off the duty schedule. So it was constantly on my mind and I didn't want to be one of those guys that canceled your flight or couldn't stand duty because you got a tummy ache. And now that impacts everybody, it impacts everybody's duty standing. It impacts the schedule, the duty schedule. So I didn't cancel whenever I didn't feel like, ooh, you know, I think maybe something's wrong, but it was always there in the back of my head and it got worse and worse and worse. So much so that I would be on duty and I would lay, lay there with so much anxiety about what might happen. And I would, I would lay there and I would pray, Lord, not tonight, please, not tonight, not another staircase. I don't want to fly anymore. And I, I really did not want to fly anymore. But I didn't tell anybody. Uh, but I had already made up my mind uh, after it was like December. This happened. The incident happened in July, and it was December that I just can't do this anymore. I, I'm I've lost my desire to want to fly. It affected me mentally, so I uh, I put in my retirement. I was going to retire at that time and retire the next summer, and because I had enough time in by that point, and uh, I didn't. Ex I just said. People ask me, well, why? Well, I just wanted to go on to something else. I didn't really tell them. I didn't even tell my wife my about my anxieties and my concerns and how it was wow. affecting me. And um, the aviation detailer in D.C. got my retirement paper. And he said, he called me and he said, what do we got to do to keep you? Because yeah, we, you know, we're short of pilots and you're experienced. And uh, I was an 04 at the time. He said, you got still got a long career ahead of you if you want to. So what do we got to do? So I said, well, I really need a break from flying. And uh, and I see the only job coming open that I might like to do. I didn't want to go to headquarters or something like that. That wasn't good for my family. And I said, the only job I wanted to do was go to the National Search and Rescue School uh, in Yorktown. Now I'm flying duty uh, aviator billet. They had to fill it with an aviator. And uh, the detailer at the time says, done. Uh, we, I got to fill it with a pilot. And uh, if I got, I don't, uh, I got to fill it with somebody. So if you want to go there and you're not going to fly anyway, you don't want to fly anymore. So it was a win-win for him, for me. I got to stay in for another four years, uh, got promoted, got one more promotion and uh, got to be involved in search and rescue uh, and training people uh, at, that did the search and rescue planning at the command centers and, uh, uh, did all that and we made a huge and the 9-11 happened while we were there so that really changed a lot of things with Coast Guard search and rescue and and the focus and uh, capabilities that we had in the command center so it was a great time to be at SAR school I uh, loved it and a great way to end my career so I, I decided after four years there uh, retire as an, as an 05 that's not bad, and, not and, bad uh, 25 years total and that was the end of my career but the end of my last flight let me tell you my last flight and i remember it distinctly it was on june 6th of 2001 uh and i, I knew i was pcs and uh movers were coming like the next day and i knew this was my last flight and it was just a routine patrol um nothing significant and i went up with uh, jeff johansson was the 
co-pilot with me and we went up to her patrol came back landed i didn't tell him i didn't tell anybody that this is my last flight um just routine we walked into the uh, uh maintenance control i did the paperwork like we normally did and uh and walked out no fanfare no celebration like you see with a lot of people on their final flight you know when they're retiring or yeah uh, getting out and i just walked away and and rather than taking my flight helmet, which you can see sitting back here on yeah. the uh, table behind me, rather than putting it back in the cubby for storing it, uh, I kept it. And I walked out of the, the hangar and I threw my helmet and helmet bag in the back of my car, in my, in my car, in my truck. And, uh, and that was it. That was my last flight. And the only memento that I have from that is my helmet, uh, which I, uh, I, I, I keep. But... I don't blame you. I've always, I've always thought back if I had talked to somebody, and you know, it was it was post traumatic stress. I mean, we we hear about you know people have different reactions to post uh, stress, post traumatic stress, and mostly you think about, it, especially with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, combat related stress. But it happens to first responders too. It happens to it happened to you. I remember yeah. hearing you talking about that on. I think it was the galaxy uh, talking yes, about sir. how that affected you after the galaxy. And, and it happens to all first responders, firefighters, uh, uh, people that work in medical professions. My, my daughter is an ER doctor and it happens to her and she has people that she can talk to. So um, if I had talked to somebody about it and that would be maybe some advice that I would give to people that are listening to this, if you're an aviator and you're out there or flight crew, and you have a traumatic experience, don't keep it to yourselves. Talk to people about it. Tell them how you're feeling and, and work it out. Don't keep it bottled in like I did. And I may be still flying today if I had uh, had got some help for that, but I didn't. I walked away. So don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't walk away from this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sorry. That's that's the way it ended. You know, I one of the things that I like the thought of is seeing guys that come out on their last flight and there's a big hoorah and they get hosed down with water and, you know, blasted with a sea dye marker. And it's, it's yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Man. You know, so I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to experience that. Um, yeah, I do. I, I, this brings up a good kind of topic of conversation. And that is, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about it anyway. Um, sure. yeah. something known as a frat or a the the duty pre-brief your crew brief mm -hmm. coming yeah. in you know one of the first questions maybe the top five for those that are all right where aircraft weather etc is crew how is everybody feeling and right. you know like and i i i admit it i admit it i have gone into a brief and said yeah i'm 100 percent, even though i'm not feeling 100 percent. but i mm -hmm. i give the illusion that I'm 100%. Now, I, I don't do that today, everybody. So I have no illusions. I will tell you if I'm not feeling up to it. I'm telling you if I'm sick. But, you know, if something's if something's not digging. So I, I understand where you were at with that. And mm -hmm. at the same time, I'm sorry you were at that point that you couldn't talk to anybody and, and that you would go into a brief like that because you were the aircraft commander at the time, yeah? Yeah, I was. Um, uh you know, I, knowing what I know now and having grown and matured, uh, I should uh, should not have gone on that flight because I was not feeling good before we took off. 
but and, and this may still happen even today is you know when you when you have to bow out of the duty schedule it yeah. impacts uh, oh, everybody because you got so now you got to call somebody in and that affects the the duty schedule for several days and uh, somebody's going to be unhappy because now they got to uh, but yeah, but that's temporary uh, when you have to, because you're not up to it. You're not feeling up to it for whatever reason. Yeah, so somebody's going to be um, inconvenienced for that, but it's it's a temporary thing. Whereas if you continue to go and do the missions like like I did, that can turn into long term impacts, uh, long term uh, uh, consequences. So yeah, uh, I so I so like you said during the brief or even before you get to the brief, if you think you're not going to be able to perform or you shouldn't be on duty or go on this flight, say something. Uh, right. Because what goes around comes around. In other words, yeah, maybe on that day, I had to bow out of the flight. But next time, somebody else, it's going to happen to somebody else. And then it's my opportunity to step in for them because they stepped in for me. And uh it it works out in the end as long as everybody's covering each other and watching out for each other. But uh, but I you know at the time it was it was the middle of summer it was transfer season we were short of pilots anyway we're all standing one and three and uh, and if I had decided yeah I got a tummy ache I don't feel good I'm like yeah no nah, I couldn't do it it's a hard decision to make you know, to make that call right and, and you just got to so. know got to be in touch with your body and. Yeah. Yeah. Is this a big deal? Is it abnormal? And it was abnormal for me to feel that way before the flight, but I thought I could just handle it. So, so let me ask so, you. Good point, Jason. Like, thanks. Uh, but even even past that, so because you said you know you started laying in bed praying that you didn't get launched out and having the anxiety. Yeah. That's another part of it. So you like, I this just like I said for you and I right now is. You know, I, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. I, I've never been in that situation. I can't say that. But I, I have been in the spot where I don't want to call my buddy in to take over for me. And I I don't want to I don't want to be a wuss. I don't want to be that guy. So I right. suck it up exactly. and I stay on duty, you know. But the, the mental game, you know, that's that's a tough one. So is there any yeah, anything you would have done different or not done different, but is there anything you would – advice or stuff you have now for guys that might be going through this with like same thing have a little anxiety yeah uh, well like i said uh talk to somebody uh talk to your at least talk to your spouse i didn't even talk to my spouse my wife about it uh, i just kept it all to myself um find a buddy a friend that you can confide in uh I, I know the, the flight surgeon is probably the last person anybody wants to go to to confess <laughs> or tell that I got a mental problem or uh, I've yeah, got yeah, yeah. a physical problem because you don't want to get grounded, but they can also fix you or help you get um, the, the treatment you need, whether it be physical or even, even mental. Um, if you, if you need it, uh, it's better than the potential consequences of what could happen on a flight or what, what happens to you long-term. And I, you know, I, I'll tell tell you and everybody else, I still struggle with anxiety. I take, uh, I take medication for it right now. Um, it, because it's not sure. only, a, that, that's, a medical, that's huge mental that's thing, huge. but it's, there's some physical things that go along with it. And, uh, and, and, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of people out there that, uh, it, 
maybe need it uh, and it can help. And I think a lot of the stigma associated with uh, anxiety and and post-traumatic stress uh, has diminished uh, a lot over the last several years that people talk about, especially with people in the military that come back. You know, PTS, PTSD is is no joke. Uh, there, you can talk to people about it. There, there are things that we can do, uh, and uh, don't suffer in silence, and or go to the ultimate. Uh, what people see as a solution, but it's not as uh, suicide. And so, yeah, don't uh, don't suffer in silence. Uh, get help. Talk to somebody. Uh, totally agree. Totally agree. One more question about that. Had you done something a little bit different where maybe you had taken a break from flying versus trying to jump right back onto the duty schedule? Do you think that would have helped? Just like, hey, just give me a break from flying for two months, three months, and then maybe try to come back. Would that have done something for you? Um, probably not. Um, okay. Because, I mean, it was why I had to wait for the waiver, to get back on flight status. I was grounded and didn't fly for like two weeks anyway so um but it was it was a mental thing i think um going to yorktown and taking a break from flying uh for four years at, at yorktown uh was good for me but still even after four years i wasn't ready i was in a different position point at that point anyways i was now in 05 so i wouldn't be a a regular duty standard, I would have been XO or ops or something like that. But but still, flying would have been involved, and there was other family considerations that just felt like for me it was the right time to uh, retire. But um, I probably could have gone back to flying if I really felt a draw toward it or fly uh, a desire. But uh, that's you know it's hard to say. You know the the what ifs. What if I'd done this? Or right. What if I'd done totally. that? Or, but uh, yeah, well, I'll tell question. you what the. Uh, thank you. I, you know what? I appreciate you telling everybody that. I mean, that's that's huge. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. I, I don't mind telling my story anymore. It's, But I did keep that bottled up for years. There's there's a lot. Yeah. My, heck, my wife didn't know for five years. Stuff was like, she's like, you did what? <laughs> I remember your wife uh, interviewing you for, you know, when you talked about the galaxy and uh, yeah. she was like, I never knew that. You never told me that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. What? yeah. Aren't you guys uh, married? Don't you know everything? <laughs> like, no, my wife, yeah. my wife doesn't know. I, I wrote my my book, uh, a memoir uh, with stories of twelve significant things that happened during my career, during my life. Uh, that I I mostly wrote the memoir because I wanted to pass pass down uh, to my granddaughter and future generations of Hey, this is what my great grandpa used to do, and right, and now, you know, they've got something in writing that they can figure out what. Uh, what their great 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 grandpa used to do and what what happened to him or what he thought but uh so my my wife read some of those stories and go you never told me about this part of it or you didn't go into the detail with me and said yeah we had a star case we saved five lives yeah yeah they, it was on a boat that was sinking yeah they're fine so it's like, wait oh, a minute okay. what just wait, another day what? on the job what? Man, just, just a day on the five, boat sinking five people in the water can, can we divert <laughs> to that can we, can we hear that story? Well, okay. Well, good segue uh, into, so that was kind of a downer, um, that last subject, but let's, let's end on a high note. Um, I like that. So again, I like that. <laughs> I'm back at ATC Mobile after my first tour in Port Angeles, instructor, 
uh, at ATC. And we did mostly training. Uh, so to get a SAR case while you're at ATC as a 65 pilot was was like, everybody wants it. You know, like, yeah, 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 send us because we didn't get to do a lot of SAR. And I was on the schedule with another guy, uh, Jeff Griffin, to uh, go on a training flight that afternoon anyway. Uh, they called us up and said, hey, uh, New Orleans is busy. Uh, normally, Air Station New Orleans would handle all the SAR over by Mobile and in the Gulf, and but they didn't have any aircraft available. And there was a tropical storm. It was tropical tropical storm Burl, and it was blown up from the south up toward uh, Pensacola, Appalachia, not Pensacola, but Panama City, Appalachicola area. So it was a long ways away from New Orleans anyway. We were the closest one. We had aircraft available. So we we launched, diverted, took off to go on a SAR case instead of a train. And you need to stop right there because yeah. you earned an award for this case and you wrote a children's book on this case and yeah. I get to read the award and then we get to get a little further, okay? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I love it. So you know what? Well done because uh this this in particular rescue earned you a commendation medal. So yeah. here is the write-up. Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Combination Medal to Lieutenant Darcy Guyant, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Guyant is cited for outstanding achievement while serving as co-pilot aboard Coast Guard H-65A Helicopter 6510 on 15 August 1994. Arriving on scene with no outside visual references and flying under instrument conditions, Lieutenant Guyant skillfully executed a precision approach down to 100 feet AWL, overhead a 38-foot fishing vessel, in distress and suffering from tropical storm furls, 50 to 55 knot winds, and 20 to 25-foot seas. Due to the violent pitching of the vessel, the safe evacuation of all crew members could only be accomplished by hoisting them aboard the helicopter directly from the water. Lieutenant Guyant briefed the crew members of the fishing vessel on the upcoming hoist, complicated by the fact that the vessel's radio was breaking apart, making communication extremely difficult. As the rescue swimmer was deployed, the aircraft commander was unable to maintain visual contact with the basket and the survivor due to the particularly high winds and large seas, and he relied on Lieutenant Guyant's continual verbal advisories regarding obstacles in the water along with altitude alerts due to the approaching waves to safely complete the evolutions. His operational knowledge and actions in enabled the helicopter to rescue all three survivors quickly without injury. Lieutenant Guyant's dedication, judgment, and devotion to duty are most heartily committed in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. God, Darcy, I love this stuff. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Woo! Yeah, it, it was a good case. Uh, those guys were going to die. So we we definitely had, and it was three people, not five. I exaggerated earlier. but uh, uh, You uh, know what? Three, three guys. It's a, it's a Coast Guard story. We can make it whatever we want. I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's why I read the award. <laughs> I, I, I don't think the award even said how many people did it. Uh, uh, three, uh, I don't three, three survivors. It. Okay, three. Okay. All right. Well, I can't change it then. Um, so the all right, so the rest of the story. The, <laughs> the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah. So we took off and uh Mobile also launched a Falcon, HU25 Falcon, 
at the same time, and of course, they're faster. They got on scene, and the weather was really nasty, as it said in the award, you know, 100-foot ceiling, very low vis, windy, bumpy, and um, they got they got on scene first, located the vessel, which was great, because because where we had to go, we knew we were going to have just enough fuel to get there, do the hoists, and then fly into uh, Apalachicola Airport, was the closest place to go to get gas, and that was our plan. So the Falcon got there, located them, updated the GPS position. We plugged it in so we could go straight there, um, got there. And even though we knew we were in the right spot, it was still hard to see them because of the, the waves and the seas. Uh, the, it was not a big boat and they were dead in the water crosswise and it was white. And so you had all these breakers. So it was still hard to spot them, but we finally did. We spotted them, made the approach to the water. Falcon blew cover over us and helped to be our uh, radio relay. And uh, we got on scene and uh, it was obvious we couldn't host to the boat. So we uh, uh, we told the guys on the boat, to go ahead and get their raft, tie their raft. They had, a, they had a raft and tie it off down to the downwind side of their boat uh, and tie it there. And the idea was they would get off the boat into the raft, the swimmer who we deployed to the water would swim up to the raft and get them off one at a time and use the raft as a staging area to uh, get them in the water, and then we'd hoist them up. And that's what we did. Put the swimmer in the water, uh, got the first guy he got in the raft, uh, got him in the water, took him up in the basket, worked like, like a champ. At this time, uh, the boat started taking waves over the stern, and it was, gonna, it was sinking. It was settling, and it was obvious the boat was going to sink before we got everybody off. So um, they untied the raft from their sinking boat, and um, when they untied it, these 50-knot winds caught it, and it took off. So there goes there goes the raft. Okay, bye. We're not going to use that anymore. <laughs> um, so so there, there was no staging area in, in the raft. It was just, okay, you're going to jump off the boat into the water. And, and that's what they did. They jumped into the, into the water. Swimmer grabbed them, did his job. Perfectly hoisted them in, and then uh, we got to the. It was taking a lot longer than we thought it would uh, to get all this done. It always does, you know. It always takes longer. Well, heck, you're in and, twenty uh, foot seas. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> Your boy's <things> working. <laughs> yeah, everybody was working on this one. Yeah, so we got fifty to fifty-five. Uh, yeah, fifty to fifty-five knot winds. Yeah, dang. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't quite enough to get called a hurricane, but. <laughs> Yeah, it was in the middle of a tropical storm, which you know, to us, it may as well have been a hurricane. But um, so before we started the third uh, hoist of the, the last guy, I, I'm sitting in the left seat and I'm monitoring the fuel and it's ticking down. I'm watching our bingo and it's getting ticking down. And I'm like, uh, uh, and I'm talking to the pilots like, uh, Jeff, uh, we got to get going here. And and they're trying to get things done as fast as possible. And I'm, I'm playing, you know, adjusting our numbers to, to see how low we can go, really go before we really are in trouble with our bingo fuel. And uh, so they got the third guy up and got him in. And we were uh, at the point where if we didn't leave right now, we might not make it back. We we're going to end up in the water or the other option that we did just brief. Uh, talk about briefly is we don't go all the way to the airport. 
we just find one of the barrier islands uh, south of uh, Apalachicola and just find a beach or a parking lot or someplace to land uh, is better than run out of fuel. So we took off wow. and uh, not sure if we were going to make it back to the airport. And of course, we're talking to the Falcon and they're giving us, they gave us a heading. And, and during the, the hoist, the, the weather was so bad, we lost GPS reception. So we didn't have an, an exact heading to fly to get us straight back to Apalachicola. We knew we had to go north somewhere. So the, the Falcon said, yeah, fly this heading. That'll take you right toward the airport. So we did. And um, and we and we're skimming along at you know maybe 200 feet because the weather's nasty. We didn't want to go IMC at this point because we didn't have enough fuel to do an instrument approach. And we talked about uh, okay, our 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 uh, go no go point is going to be the first island we come to, and we'll make a decision then: do we need to land or do we keep going to the airport? And by this time, we picked up a, a really good tailwind. And it was, nice. we were zipping along. We had been, you know, doing probably over the water, good 200 knots of uh, ground speed. Oh, and uh, that's really we, fast uh, for everybody that doesn't know that. For a, yeah, for a, for a uh, H65. Uh, yeah. And um, so we're zipping along and we, we finally just feel, figured out, yeah, we can make it to the airport. Uh, we're going to land uh, at our minimums that we really want to be at. Um, maybe a little below, but we knew we could make the airport. And that's where the ambulance was, because one of the guys was was hurt. Uh, the first guy we picked up, he had some pretty bad internal injuries, turned out. Um, so we got to the airport, landed, ambulance took him away. We tied everything down and uh, waited for the storm to kind of blow itself down to a point where we could refuel him. And uh, I think we stayed on deck for a couple hours and, uh, and then head, headed back to ATC, Mobile. Uh, three lives saved. So, um, Booyah! <laughs> it was intense. Oh my now, gosh! It, yeah, it was probably the most intense storm I had flown in to that point. I hadn't been to Alaska yet at that point, um, uh, and experienced that. But uh, uh, so the ops officer they submitted us for an award and, I, and i've heard you talk about this with other people too um i'm thinking in my head and you know as a crew we're thinking yeah that's uh that's an air medal it was air medal worthy um and uh, you know we don't do this to earn medals you know that um right. but hey if you're gonna recognize it you know you know why not so it got downgraded. Uh, it was initially put in as an air medal, and somebody in the chain of command decided, eh, maybe if it had been at night, but it wasn't air medal material. So they downgraded it to a combination medal. I was upset by that at first. I kind of stewed over that, and I finally came to the realization of, wait a minute, why do I care so much about a medal? That's not why there's five or three guys, I'm still saying five, three guys <laughs> that went home that night that are alive, that wouldn't have been otherwise. They went on to, I don't know whatever happened to them. I never met them, don't even know their names, but they went on to live their lives, get, get married, have kids. Uh, you know, and I keep telling, I, and especially when I talk to kids, I tell them we have a superpower. Forget all these superheroes that can do Superman stuff. We all have a superpower. And they're like, what is it, what is it? And I tell them, you can change the future. You can't change the past, but you can change the future based on what you do and the decisions you make and the actions you take. And they're like, really? And to them, that's kind of a letdown. It's like they want a real superpower, but you know what? That your ability to change the future and impact somebody's life, like we did, we changed those guys' future. Yeah. 
and they went on to have a great life, hopefully. Um, but uh, so that was, you know, who cares? I mean, it's nice, but you know, it's nice to be recognized. That's, but we don't do it for the medals. We, I, that's not why I go. I do it because yeah. I. And if you're doing it I for do. the medals, if you're doing it for the medals, you, you got a problem. There's you're yeah. uh, you're maybe dangerous. You're going to make decisions because you want to be a hero or do things, right. and that's not how that works. How this works, and it's supposed to work. So, right. So, so anyway, um, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was asked to be a guest speaker at a high school for their Veterans Day uh, assembly. All the kids got together for a Veterans Day assembly, and they asked me to come and be a, uh, to speak at their uh, Veterans Day assembly. And I said, sure. Um, and the, the uh, theme for their Veterans Day assembly was legacy, uh, legacy of service, military service. And I said, oh yeah, I could talk about that easy because I am a seventh generation descendant of a Revolutionary War veteran. Uh, he was wounded at the bat Battle of Monmouth, New Jersey with George Washington and was there as the commanding general. And then uh, a couple of years later, he was at the Battle of Yorktown, my great, 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 great grandfather. And uh, the other part of family legacy is uh, my dad was in the Navy. My brother was in the Air Force. My son was in the Marines. My daughter was in the Army and I was in the Army and, and the Coast Guard. So we had all five branches of the military covered. Wow. So a lot of family legacy. So I, I was able to talk about that a lot. But in just doing some background research, my my great 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 grandfather, the Revolutionary War guy, we didn't really know much about him uh, other than he filled out a document uh, requesting in 1833 applying for veterans benefits. And he detailed his military history uh, when he immigrated from England prior to the war and had some details in there, but it was just about his military history. We didn't know why he came, where he lived, what was his job before the war or after the war. Um, there is some information that my grandparents dug up about his uh, descendants, uh, the genealogy, but I said, boy, it wouldn't have been really nice if he had just wrote some letters or wrote something to pass down. You know, for us that now, 200 years later, want to know well, why or what did you do? So I decided at that point for my granddaughter, uh, I wanted to write down some of that. So that's when I wrote, you know, my, my memoir. I wrote this book for her. Figured wait, wait so let's see that again. Let's see that one more time. Hold it's, it up. Uh, to seek That's and right. to save. To seek and to save. Woo! Yeah. All right. Five on the front, and in the title, to seek and to save comes. It's I mean, it's just search and rescue to seek and save. But it comes from uh, there's a verse in the Bible in Luke nineteen ten. It says, "He has come to seek out and save those who are lost." So, so basically, uh, Jesus was on a search and rescue mission. So I, I wrote, uh, and, and the book has a lot about my. Uh, my background, my faith journey, and faith, along with yes. my my military background, and and uh, and of course, I got this painting up on the wall back here. It's it's got double meaning: uh, search yeah. and rescue. It, it, the guy in that painting right there looks just like the guy I, my first rescue case. The guy clinging to the overturned boat, same kind of look, you know, holding on yeah. to dear life, but hanging on to a cross. For those that are listening on the podcast, if you're wondering what painting I'm talking about. If you Google, the title of the painting is Rescued, and the uh, the uh, 
artist is Darren Hoover, two R D A R R I N, I believe. Darren Hoover rescued, and you can see uh, a copy of that painting. It's significant for anybody that's done search and rescue, I think. So that's why yeah. I'm in there. But so anyway, so I wrote my memoir. At this time, I was also uh, working at uh, or volunteering. I wasn't working, uh, getting paid to do it. I was a full-time volunteer at a elementary school, working primarily with uh, first grade teachers and first grade students in helping to do whatever they needed. And sometimes it was working one-on-one -on -one with kids, uh, uh, you know, just doing odd jobs for the teacher to help you know, relieve some of their uh, burden because they, uh, teachers, it's an amazing to be in a school working with teachers to see really what goes on behind the scenes and everything they got to do. And uh, so I was there and the, the teachers, the first grade teachers read my memoir and they said, you know what, Darcy, you should turn this or take a story and make a children's book out of it. And at first I'm like, nah, 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 nah. I mean, that's, that's not children's story friendly, you know, and it's going to scare the poor kids, you know? And, <laughs> and uh, I said, no, you could make a good story out of this. So <clears throat> I kind of poo-pooed it for a while and they kept encouraging me. And uh, I got to give a shout out to the teachers, uh, you know, Aaron, Michelle, Mara, Lorena and uh, Regina. Regina uh, was the editor of uh, of the book after I uh, story after I wrote it. But they, I said, okay, nice. I'll give it a try. I'd never written a children's book before, and so it was a. I did when I, I googled and learned how to do it. And I started looking at children's book a little bit closer. Of, okay, what do they do? How do they write it? Uh, you know, what's important? And just self taught myself how to write a children's book. And uh, so I did, I, you know, I wrote uh, um, Into the Storm and I picked the chapter out of my memoir about the, the story that I just told you down in Mobile of rescuing the three guys off, uh, off a sinking boat, a fishing boat in the middle of Tropical Storm Borough. And of course I had to condense it and put it, make it children friendly, but the moral or the, the big part, so I wanted to tell the Coast Guard rescue story because there isn't really any good books that I've been able to find that really tell the story of Coast Guard search and rescue. There's right. a couple, uh, but they're not really written toward the kindergarten, first, second, third grade age level. That was my target audience. And uh, so I wanted to tell it a story that they could understand and appreciate. And I'm thinking about this and, okay, so to tell the story, kids like characters that they can relate to. So I took the H65 and I put eyes. You can see it in the uh, on the yep. cover. The banner behind me has the eyes, and I said, "Well, let's call this. Let's give him a name of Dolph, short for Dolphin. He's a H65 Dolphin, but we'll just call him Dolph." So that was the name I gave him. And so you got to have a pilot. So I had my granddaughter in mind as I'm thinking about uh, the the pilot. I said, "I'm going to make the pilot uh, a woman," and. Um, and she's going to look like my granddaughter and my daughter. Uh, I sent the I illustrator. I'm not, I'm not an artist. I'm not an artist, so I couldn't do the illustrations. I had to hire an illustrator. And I sent the illustrator. And we spent a lot of time. That's the most time-consuming thing with doing a children's book. And the expensive part of it is uh, the <laughs> illustrations. And um, I sent him a picture of my daughter and my granddaughter. And said, hey, can you make a pilot? Her name is Gwen. So it's a story of Dolphin Gwen. Can you make Gwen look kind of like my daughter? Because I think my granddaughter will look like that or similar. The funny thing is, and he did, uh, the funny thing is the first time I showed my granddaughter, who's three and a half now, 
the book and the picture on the cover, I asked my granddaughter, who does this look like? And uh, she says, mama. So she immediately recognized that. The, <laughs> That's so awesome. I'm thinking the illustrator, yes, he nailed it. So, so anyway, so the story is from the perspective of the helicopter. He, they get the alarm, they take off to fly into the storm and, and the illustrations show black clouds, lightning, waves. It's not your typical children's book. It's all unicorns and rainbows and glitter and talking little cute animals. It's uh, it's a little bit intense. And um, but it was the purpose was to tell the story as realistic as we could for a children's book of what we do, you know, as a team, as a, as a crew, and um, how the themes are courage. Even though you feel scared, you can be courageous and be brave. And we all feel that sometimes. And um, and then teamwork and uh, trust, which is a big part of what we do on every single mission. We got to be brave, even though we might like, holy cow, I don't want to do this. This is scary. But there are ways to get through that by having a good team and trusting in your team and talking about it with your team and uh coming up with ways to minimize the risk and uh, mitigate the risk and still do the job anyway. So those are all things that were a theme of the story. And then I talk about that with the kids afterwards. Uh, talk about well, what is courage? It's you're being brave. Well, how do you, how can you be brave? And of course, kids, I ask them after this, I read the story, I ask them, have you guys ever been afraid? And of course, every hand goes up and they're afraid of, there's all kinds of things that they're afraid of. And uh, I said, well, you know, how can you, become get get courage and become brave and we talk about you know talk to people about it talk to your parents talk to your teacher tell them what you're concerned about and you can become brave by practicing and uh like we all do all the time you know we go into doing stuff weather and seas because we've thought about it we've practiced it and uh, it helps us to minimize yeah you're you're still concerned but you're not terrified anymore, you know, because you've done it before, you've practiced it, and um, you've thought it through in your head. There's, you know, you've, you've role played it. So that's the things that I talk to the kids about uh, how to be brave as a first grader. And the kids love this book. Uh, oh, it, it's awesome. It's, it's really yeah. been a hit. Um, they're, they're not afraid of the story. In fact, I think they like the book because it's not um, all glitter and and rainbows and it's uh, my granddaughter the first time i sat down to read read the story to my granddaughter my daughter and her dad uh, my granddaughter's dad uh, were sitting right next to us on the couch and my wife is taking pictures and i'm reading this to this my story to my three and a half year old granddaughter and she starts to get scared and she's snuggling up to her mom and i got a a picture of her holding on to her mom's arm, wide-eyed, and I'm reading the story, and I'm afraid I'm gonna have to stop because she's scared, but I kept going, and we got to the end of the story, and she's like squeezing her mom, and I got to the end of the story, and she's like, read it again. So <laughs> I ended up reading it like five times in a row. She is, we read that story so many times. She's got it memorized. She's three and a half. She can't read the words, but she knows the word for word, 100% memorized. And uh, she'll read it to other people. She read it to her great grandparents, my parents, her great grandparents. 
she read the story to them, told them the story basically word for word. And uh, it was, I mean, as, as an author uh, and a pilot, uh, I mean, you couldn't ask him, it was priceless. There's no price you can put on that. So, so that's wow. how that came about. Uh, really excited about the book. I've been uh, trying to get word out about it. So thank you for allowing me to share oh, that of on your My podcast pleasure. here. And, and uh, I, I talked with uh, Liz Booker. I had a podcast with her uh, video uh, last week. Uh, where she's really big into promoting women in aviation. And nice. She loved this Wonderful. book. She was so excited about it. I wish, and she said over and over, I wish I had this book when my daughter, 20 years ago, when my daughter was a kid. And, uh, and she was just so excited about making sure that this gets into the hands of, of parents and kids to be able to share the Coast Guard story, but also the themes of courage and teamwork and, and all of that and, and a, a possible career path. And so it's been great. I love it. Oh, that's fantastic. Man, Darcy, this is amazing. You took an amazing <laughs> career, turned it into a memoir, and then turned it into a children's book oh yeah this is well done sir well done this is great well the last page I'll, I'll just read you the quote on the last page of my of the of this book it says the coast guard motto is summer paratus which means always ready i'm ready for the next exciting coast guard adventure are you so that's how i conclude it kind of setting the uh the stage for the next coast guard adventure and the adventures Coast Guard Adventures of Dolphin Gwen is the title. And uh, people are asking me, so when's the next adventure coming out? And I've got it written in my head. I just haven't put it down on paper. Uh, I will eventually. There'll be there'll be a second story. Uh, maybe it'll turn into a big series. I don't know. Oh, man. You know what? Have some fun with it. Enjoy it. It's it's amazing. For everybody, go check it out because it's actually it's a super great read. I read it myself. It's it's, it makes you like smile all the way through. I loved it. I loved it. So great. great. Darcy, this has been an incredible trip for me. Thank you so much for joining me to tell me these stories and, and what you're doing. And, it's oh, bringing it's the, been bringing my privilege. Coaster. It has oh. been a privilege. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure. When I get out to Washington, you know, I'm going to call you and then uh, we're going to have to go kick one back. Absolutely. Yeah. I look forward to it. Cool. Maybe I could be a rescue swimmer in one of your books. I'm just throwing that out there. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. Could happen. Could happen. It could the happen. rescue swimmer that is in my book is is representative of all the swimmers. You know. Okay. So, okay. All right. You know what? <laughs> I'll give it to him. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll see you soon. Thank you again so much. And uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. I'll be listening. All right. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, 
therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.